You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. Time is an interesting concept, isn't it? We live on a moment in a timeline that is constantly converting the future to the past. The future to the past. Everything I planned on saying early in my office this week will move from a future concept to a past reality at some point in this sermon. And now that has. And now that has. And now that has. Time is fleeting. We can't hold on to it. Maybe you've heard the riddle. What can fly without wings? Time. Poet T.S. Eliot once wrote, Time past and time present are both together in time future. Which is just really a clever way of saying, right? We live with the understanding that the past and the present will always lead to something in the future. This is the ordinary flow of history. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us, however, of something very different when we look at the book of Hebrews. This is what he says. I will do my best not to slip into a Scottish accent every time I read Sinclair. All I hear is his deep Scottish brogue, so I apologize if it does exist there for a second. This is what he says. The letter to the Hebrews presents a very different perspective on God's purposes and patterns in the flow of history. There, it would be true to say the future determines the past and the present rather than the other way around. To understand Hebrews and thus to understand how the Bible as a whole works, we need to understand this riddle. The invisible is more substantial than the visible. The future comes before the past. The new is more fundamental than the old. What does all this mean? Simply put, it means that the story of our Lord Jesus, his person and work, is not a divine afterthought. It's not a heavenly plan B, hurriedly scrambled together when plan A went horridly wrong in the garden. No, the coming of Christ was in the plan before the fall. Everything that precedes it chronologically actually flows from it logically. From one point of view, of course, the Old Testament serves as a model of what Christ would come to accomplish. But Hebrews teaches us never to lose sight of the fact that the priesthood, sacrifices, liturgy, and life of the Old Testament church are simply a rough copy. Christ is the original. And we see this concept again today in Hebrews 10. We will be in verses 1 through 18. And this section is divided into two major parts. Verses 1 through 4 show us the insufficiency of legal sacrifices to remove sin. And consequently, verses 5 through 18 declare how Christ's sacrifice actually does remove sin. The theme of this book is put on display once again with the idea that Jesus is greater. Let's begin by reading the text today. Now, I'm going to do something different. Typically, we stand for the reading of God's word. As we were listening to D.A. Carson this week at the, at the um, 
at the conference. Thank you. There's my English language at the conference, right? Um, He proceeded slowly through the text, and I was beyond edified. And I know sometimes I read this text, you know, at roughly 30 miles per hour with gusts up to 45. And uh, I want to do my best today. This is one of those texts I want us to sit in. So I'm li- we're going to do that figuratively and literally this morning. You may stay seated for this, but I want to proceed through the text more slowly. I won't always do this, but I think for certain texts it's good to enjoy it as we go. So follow along with us. We'll be in Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrificing, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he added, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's move to the shadow this morning, which is found in verses 1 through 4. Last week, we talked much about the point of the temple, the blood and the law. The law here is given its essence. Verse 1 reminds us that it is but a shadow. Now, if you remember the opening of our series on Hebrews, we actually talked about this verse extensively because it's a good summation of the book of Hebrews as a whole. Do you recall the analogy of Peter Pan's shadow from a couple weeks ago? How Peter had to find it, how Peter had to be connected with it again? And we mentioned some key things that we need to be reminded of when it comes to shadows. First thing is this, 
is that shadows are real. Verse 1 is not saying that the law isn't reality at all. It is not saying that the law lacks truth. What it is saying is that the law is a reflection of something that would come in the future. That is Christ. Two, the shadows outline reality. Look, if we have a, sh- if we have a lamp stand here and we put a light on the lampstand and it throws itself on the wall, you know what will not be there? The shadow of an elephant. Because the shadows outlines reality. It points to the reality that actually takes place. From our perspective, the word of God is the light. And we shine that light on Jesus to tell us who he is and what he has done. And the shadow behind Jesus is the Old Testament law that's displayed on the wall or on the floor. It's still important. It's still true. But oh, how Jesus is greater than those things. Jesus is better. Next is the multitude of shadows. Some of you, I'm sure as children, played this game, right? You would take a flashlight and shine it on an object, and you would see what shadow appears on the wall. And if you are really clever, you and your friends might take multiple multiple lights and reflect it on the same object, and you might see different shadows cast upon the wall. We used to do that as children. Some of us still do this as adults, me and Liz, when we set lights at the theater at the Huber, right? We have to be aware of this because we know that people are going to be lighted from different perspectives. And depending on the lighting, it'll cast some very unique shadows. And so we want to make sure that things are lit the particular way. Now, does that mean that the thing, the object that we're casting light upon is diminished? Actually, it does not. It actually magnifies the object, which is gaining more light from different perspective, even if the shadows are in multitude behind it. This is, believe it or not, very similar to what's taking place in verses 2 through 3. The sacrifices, the shadow of Christ that existed in the Old Testament, had to be made yearly to point to the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The multiplicity of the shadow didn't make that shadow sufficient, It actually points to the shadow's insufficiency. They were the reminder. A reminder of what? Of what was discussed last week. Of the horridness of sin. And the sacrifice that was needed to secure salvation. Hebrews 10.4 puts the stamp on this section. If you're like, what is this section about? Hebrews 10.4 tells us. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then the consequently in verses 5 begins to make the case for why Christ is greater. It goes back to the time element when Christ came into the world. When Christ came into the world. It wasn't that Christ didn't exist before the incarnation with Mary and Joseph and the stable and the manger. When Christ enters at a specific moment, he, unlike us, knows all moments before his incarnation self, yet he enters in. That's why he is the reality of the shadow, because he has existed before time began. That is why there's a real sense that the shadow appears behind the object and not the way in which we experience reality. Verse 5 goes to prove this by quoting Psalm 40 to show that even back when Psalm 40 was written, there was a plan. So let's look at Psalm 40, which we see in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all, you see this phraseology throughout this section, this idea. And let's be real, I actually love once and for all things, especially when those things are hard. Now, let's imagine some things that are miserable that we have to do all the time, that if we only had to do one time, we'd probably take great joy in it. First, because we just got done with it, our taxes. Can you imagine a world in which the government at some point, they look at your job or your IQ or something, they just say, this is what you owe, and you just got to pay it once, and it's done. I would vote for that candidate in a second, right? Can you imagine only having to go to the BMV one time in your life and not multiple times on the same day because you forgot that form and you had to travel 40 minutes back just to go back? Just to find out that wasn't the form they asked for in the first... Never mind. (sighs) BMV. Imagine chemo treatments. Imagine if a chemo treatment was a one-time thing. And now your body is forever immune to cancer. Many of us would sign up for that even if we hadn't had cancer yet. We'd go through that hell just to be done with the hell that exists within cancer. But there are great things too, right, that we actually like that are once-for-all moments. Think of a wedding. Imagine if we had to get married yearly. Each year, Corey had to recommit to me. I might be in trouble. (laughs) My grandmother was a character, and one day her and my grandfather were on their way to the VA to check on some benefits. And the officer at the VA said to my grandmother, he said, Sally, did you know that your name is misspelled on your wedding certificate? And Sally, not missing an opportunity to poke at my grandfather, looks at him, looks at the officer and says, does that mean I can get out? (laughs) Sally, Sally, Sally. She was kidding, partially, but it's a once-for-all moment, or at least it was designed to be before we as sinners tend to ruin it. Marriage is a reflection of the relationship Christ has with this church, see Ephesians 5, and a once-for-all moment defines everything that comes after and many things that come before in that relationship. Now think about adoption. Imagine being an orphan. And someone says, I would like for you to be part of my family. You just have to resubmit an application every couple months. No offense, but I don't think there would be much rejoicing at that adoption party, right? If, if you're the orphan, you might be a little worried about your long-term security. But that's not how it works. We had an adoption party here at the church several months ago. There was much rejoicing. There was much celebration because there was a once-for-all moment, one gavel and one judge declaring a new family, and boom, it's finished. 
One of the things lacking in the Old Covenant was the finality of the event. This is not so in the New. When Jesus said on Calvary to Telestai that it is finished, it was over. It's done. We are purchased. We are made his family. And because he is outside of time, he knew where you would come in on the timeline and he had you on his mind. Now, I'm not talking about how comfortable you and I are with the doctrine of election, nor all the details of such a divisive doctrine, but it's clear in Scripture that he had you and I in mind from the beginning. In one of my favorite passages about Christ's love for me, the Father's love for me, we see this in Ephesians 1. Look at it with me in that very small font, which I immediately regret. So listen with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every heavenly, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. His act at Calvary was a once and for all moment, church. For his glory and for our sakes. And we can smile greatly at that, Christian. We can smile greatly. We need not earn salvation. We don't offer our bodies as living sacrifices to attain salvation. We offer them because our bodies are now his. And we reflect Christ's love for us as we lay down our lives for our families, for our communities, and for our enemies. Verse 11 through 18 echo the same thoughts, but add the implications both of Jesus and us, both, uh, adds the implications both of Jesus and us of his actions. So let's see this in Hebrews 10, 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We see here his heart in our heart, in verses 11 through 18. His heart is a conquering one. He sits at the right hand of God, his kingdom secured, his enemies doomed. Why are they doomed? For his people march upon the gates of hell. Every time we share the gospel, 
The kingdom of hell shakes and the heart of Christ is magnified. Every time we sacrifice for our neighbors for the sake of the gospel, the kingdom of hell trembles and the heart of Christ is magnified. Every time we match our heartbeat with his heartbeat, the kingdom of hell falls silent for the only sound of the advancing drum is the heart of King Jesus. It's guaranteed. If you're in Christ, you're on the winning team. Hallelujah. And while the enemy will win some battles... (laughs) His war effort is vanquished. It's done. Christ's sacrifice guaranteed the win. A win for the kingdom of God and the win for our very hearts. He sacrificed guaranteed the win. Hebrews 10.14 says this, For by a single offering he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His single offering is his life. Those he perfected are you and I when we repent and turn to Jesus and follow him as our king. We are made righteous because of his offering. And he promises in that verse that we will be sanctified. This is where he promises that. Now, what is sanctification? Look, that's a big theology word, uh, but I don't consider any of you dumb, so I think we can handle that, okay? So this is what sanctification is. Sanctification is a work of God in which he re- in which he renewed in the image in which we renew. Oh, I butchered that. I apologize, my English. Sanctification is a work of God in which he re- we are renewed in the image of God. We die more and more to sin, and we live more and more until righteousness. Sanctification is a work of God in which we are renewed in the image of God. We die more and more to sin and live more and more until righteousness. That means... His heart is becoming our heart. His heart is becoming our heart. The law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai was not just a rule list, but a reflection of the very heart of God. And his Holy Spirit bears witness. See in the verse 15 how it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness? For it is the Holy Spirit, the helper, that is at work in our lives as we conform our hearts onto God's image. And when we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, then we can know that our sins are are forgiven. We see that in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. By reversing the clauses in this statement, we can understand the author's logic. He's being clever here. Because there is no longer an offering for sin, forgiveness has fully and finally come to the people of God. Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is never to be repeated because its effectual nature means that it will never need to be repeated. Thus, everything necessary to secure the pardon and everlasting life of God's people has been achieved. Nothing more needs to be done. We need not and cannot add to the perfection of the work of Christ. Does that mean we're now passive? We don't need to do anything else, Pastor. I prayed that prayer. I got my fire insurance. Now it's over. By no means. By no means. You see, the proof of salvation is that there is indeed a sacrifice. Romans 12.1 speaks to this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So let's talk about our sacrifice here. One of the proofs 
of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is our active decision to lay down that life for others for the glory of God. Too often, American Christians think, well, that's what we pay the pastor to do. He's got to live the holy life, right? We can do what we want, laissez-faire. That's what we pray for the missionaries to do. They, they get to share the gospel. We don't do that. We send missionaries to do that. No, no, no. You misunderstand. This is what Christians do. They do. There is an activity. The life of a Christian is active. It is not passive. It will look different for each of us, for all of us are different according to the body in which we belong on. The body of Christ is made up of different parts, but we all answer to the head of the body, which is Christ. So, what will you sacrifice? What will you sacrifice? Is it financial? This is for every person in here, including the poor people, okay? Do we order our sacrifices to the glory of God? Do we order our finances to the glory of God? Is it your work? How do you reflect Christ in your workplace? How about in the decisions that you make? I know there's a lot of teenagers in the room today, so this is specifically towards you because if you miss this part in your life, you end up in a really interesting place in about a year or two, okay? But hear this. This does not mean that if you're a senior citizen that you can't hear this too, okay? There's a lot coming up for the teenagers in the room, okay? Job opportunities, dating relationships, and it will be tempting to ask, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with my life? The first question that we should be asking and training our hearts to do is what would God have me do? What would God have me do? Who would God have me pursue a relationship with, if anybody? What job should I pursue so that I could order my life in such a way to maximize the kingdom of heaven? Parents, we have to ask, what would God have me involve my children in? Less than 0.002% of kids become professional athletes. 100% of them will stand before an almighty holy God. If you were to ask, if their kids were to ask you what's important in your life, and they were to judge it based on the time and talents and treasures in which you supply their life, what would they say? What are you modeling what is important? Are you sacrificing for the kingdom of Jesus, or are we building our own kingdoms and showing our kids how to build their own kingdoms? Reminder, our kingdoms are built on sand. Show them where the rock is. What is your sacrifice? If you can't think of one right now, repent and believe the gospel. Your sacrifice doesn't save you. Jesus does that. Verse 18 was clear. There no longer is an offering of sacrifice for sin, but there's still an offering. And we offer the world Jesus by the choices we make as his ambassadors. Here's the crazy part. Here's the crazy part. It's crazy. When we sacrifice, we actually gain more than we lose. We gain peace. We gain perspective. We gain purpose. 
We gain more of Jesus as our heart becomes more like his. Have you considered that when Jesus went to the cross, he had this same idea on his mind? He knew he would actually gain more than he lost. He knew that what he was going to go through, the wrath of God poured out for the sins of many, he pleaded with the Lord for that cup to pass from him, but he still walked in the Father's will. Why? Because he knew he would gain his bride. He would gain you and me. And that is so much more than what he would lose as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. He'd gain you. Christian, cling to the sacrifice. Gain heaven. For those of you that are here in the room and you're considering Christ, cling to the sacrifice. Lose this world. Gain more. For Jesus is greater. Greater than anything this world has to offer. Amen? Bow your heads with me.